Erica, I gave it to you for Christmas. Yes, she did. So I, <laughs> I, I hope you read it, Erica. I, I'm going to read it soon. <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 169. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today, you'll meet Fimi Trung and Erica T. Benjamin, best friends who share both a passion for work that creates positive change in the world and practically identical reading taste. As you'll hear, even one of their favorites is shared today. We are chatting about the book that taught them radical self-care, how literature has helped them dive more deeply into understanding their heritage, fictional characters who move smoothly between cultures, and the community-building work Fimi and Erica are doing in Los Angeles through their democracy driven book club, Sister Insider, that I so wish I could attend in person. We cover so much ground in this episode, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Let's get to it. Femi and Erica, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, we've really been excited to be part of this. This episode has its origins in one of the more delightful submissions we have received in all our now three years of What Should I Read Next History. Femi, your husband wrote in and said, her birthday's coming up. She loves the show. I want to surprise her. Here are all her books. Will you have her on? At what point did you find out this happened? I didn't find out until he got a response back from Brenna. He printed out the email, wrapped it up like three different times, gave it to me as a gift. I was slowly opening the gift. He was like giggling the whole time. I had no, I thought they were like concert tickets or something. I had no idea. And then I opened it up and then I saw like something typewritten on a paper and, and it looked like an email. And I'm like, I have no idea what this is. And then as I'm reading the email, that's when I'm finding out and I'm reading like his submission as well. And it's so, so sweet, but I, he totally caught me off guard. I was very surprised. Even more surprises. And then I flipped over to the next page and saw Brenna's response. By that point, I was just like shaking and laughing and screaming. I like hugged him. And then I was like, no, I hate doing interviews on myself. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like everyone else, I hate the sound of my voice. And then I started panicking. And he was like, you know, you're totally fine. You can do whatever you want. Then immediately I was like, Erica, this is why we started our book club last year. You know, I always feel like I'm just talking, talking about books and I never know if he's listening. But actually, like now that I think back to it, definitely the month and a half before he did start asking me more and more about books. But I only thought because he was going to buy me books for Christmas or something. He was really smart because, you know, he didn't ask me all at once, like, tell me three books you love and a book you hate. (laughs) He was just like, one day he'd be like, hmm, what's a book you really don't like? I never hear you talk about that. Or quietly like browsing my computer. And of course, afterwards, and it all makes sense. But while it was happening, I just thought it was weird that he suddenly took an interest in my in my reading life. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at What Should I Read Next HQ, we're just sharing it with each other going, oh my gosh, this is so fun. (laughs) Yeah, he was really, really sweet. He was being very sneaky, but super, super sweet. Yeah. And if I could add, this is just so so exemplary of what a supportive partner Ryan has been during the whole time that I've known Femi. He's uh, always bringing us snacks or coffee during our book drive and um, helping us set up for the book club. It's just been really awesome having him as an ally (laughs) uh, as we've uh, tried to launch this book club. How do you all know each other? I actually went to school with Ryan at San Francisco State, which uh, Femi went to before as Ryan and I started, I believe, right, Femi? Yeah. I took a couple classes with Ryan. I think we had um, maybe one or two group projects, but we never really hung out. Fast forward to six years later, I'd moved to LA for my graduate program at UCLA. And he just reached out and said, hey, remember we used to know each other in San Francisco? Uh, Do you want to meet up with me and my Mm -hmm. girlfriend, Femi, (laughs) who I'd never met before? And I feel like we just hit it off right away. 
we're both uh, Vietnamese and like we just had a lot of things in common. I remember I was feeling like I really missed all my friends in San Francisco. And Ryan was like, hey, I'm just going to, you know, reach out to some people I know, some folks I know who have like similar interests. Right before, I remember thinking like, I'm tired. I don't want to go out. I just want to stay, <laughs> which I don't know if I've ever told you, Erica, but... No. <laughs> I was like, fine, let's go. And then Erica and I like totally hit it off. I think like we just talked nonstop, right, Erica? Mm-hmm. And it yeah. was like our first meeting. And then I, when I got home that night, Ryan was like, remember when you didn't want to go? And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that's how we met. But it feels like we've known each other for a really long time now. It does. Just fall in love right away. Just <laughs> have uh, admired and respected Feeny from the beginning and just think that she's a saint. So I really couldn't think of anyone else that I would have wanted to start the book club with. Like, she's just, she's just amazing. Aww. We had a guest in recent history. His name was Scott Flannery and his specific story was different. But I remember him saying how it was so hard to make new friends in his 30s in Los Angeles specifically, which is where he was mm-hmm. living when he started a book club to make friends. Leaping off from there, what's the origin story for Sister Insider? Your book club sounds amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Origin story for Sister Insider. I think it's going to be almost our one year Mm -hmm. in a couple months. But basically, Erica and I, we never really buddy read anything. As soon as I graduated from grad school, I was just like, give me all the books that I can just read for fun now. Whatever I wanted to read that was on textbooks. And then would recommend them, post them on Instagram, share them with friends. Erica would read a lot too and share what she would be reading with me. And then I think we realized, hey, like, why don't we just start like a cool book club where we can get together, but also invite people we secretly want to be friends with or get closer with. And also invite people that we know are also reading and are interested and and see who will show up. We were just kind of not feeling mainstream literary canon of reading books by white males and wanting to read more books and literature by women, particularly experiences by women of color or trans women, feeling like we needed to dedicate a time and space to read those types of books, and then seeing that a lot of other people want to do the same and also want to join in our discussion. So put it together, make fun flyers, treat it like a little fun (laughs) potluck party and go from there. I would say that in both of our professional lives, we're trying to live our values in our work. You know, Femi's work is a social work with teen parents, and I work closely with uh, the labor movement, trying to organize workers who are facing horrendous conditions on the job. There's a lot of hurt that we see that our communities and uh, clients are experiencing. I thought that this book club could really be a place where we can create more community mm-hmm. with the national climate um, being so hostile in how women are talked about and treated and attacks against people of color, immigrants coming out of the White House. We just really wanted a space for love and community. Tell me more about reading to heal or reading as self-care. Ooh, reading as self-care. Well, beautifully said, Erica. I feel mm-hmm. like in, in our respective work, I mean, like a nonprofit work and community work. And for me as a social worker, coordinating kind of a program for young families and parents, it's easy for us to like carry a heavy caseload, hear a lot of traumatic stories from our clients, from our families that we're working with, not just social work, but in any kind of like direct practice, social service work, you know, whether it be caregiving, whether it be social work, I don't know, even as a teacher, like I just feel like we get easily burnt out by offering so much of ourselves. And so reading as a self-care practice, reading as a way to heal for me just really helps just kind of making space for and time for yourself to be mindful and be present. And for me, there's nothing more present than just kind of canceling out all the other noise that's your day-to-day, your to-do list, your clients, your chart notes, all of these other things, just giving time to yourself and honoring a space that you are creating so that you can read and take in, you know, like an imaginative world or whatever it is that you're reading and acknowledging that you had a hard day work and you need time to yourself. But also doing this kind of work day-to-day just makes you feel like hopeless sometimes when you feel like there are so many other factors involved in making the world a better place and you're just one tiny player that for me when you're reading it could be any book but when you're reading a story about a character going through a lot of 
trauma, you know, facing a lot of challenges, building community and other supporting characters in their lives or building resilience and seeing them go through challenges in their own way can be hopeful for you as a reader. I mean, part of the reason why I love like we'll get into later, like really sad books is also seeing characters at the end of the book just really grow. And so it kind of gives me hope that the world is moving at its own pace and we're all tiny players. But if we're working to honor our work and honor ourselves and take care of ourselves and each other, we're going to be able to move and grow and, you know, kind of uplift ourselves from such challenges as well. So it's hope reading to heal for me is like a hopeful aspect of my work and just a way for me to keep going. And I'm noticing how you all have talked about the importance of reading as being something you can do in a important, blessed kind of solitude, but mm-hmm. also something that really draws you into community with other people and back out into the world. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different here today because we want to hear about what you all read individually and about the Sister Insider Book Club, because I really love what you all are doing. You all are each going to tell me two books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And then we'll talk about what the Sister Insider Book Club may enjoy reading next. You all suggested it could be fun for me to recommend books, and then you all could report back if by your democratic process you vote and choose to read them and tell me and our listeners what you thought. Next. Okay, we're going to let the birthday girl go first. Femi, <laughs> tell me about two books you love. One is Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown, which Eric and I read last summer. And it kind of came just at a perfect time in our professional careers. I think we were feeling, well, I'll speak for myself. I was feeling kind of down. I was feeling kind of a little bit lost in terms of like community organizing work, social services. I read Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown and just felt totally inspired and just like renewed. And it's nonfiction. I kind of describe it as a radical self-care book for folks who work in movement spaces or in social services. And it kind of just reorients your role in the larger work of community service. So that's one book I love. Second book is Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeline Tien. The story that spans multiple family generations and migration, totally emotional punch in the gut. And I loved it. Big themes that really connect to your life that you're actually living today. Yes. And also straight to your emotions. Is that typical of much of what you enjoy reading? Yeah, straight to the emotion. I also really like heartbreaking sad books. I also like stories about migration and families that are connected in different ways. Interesting. We can do something with that. Erica, tell me about your favorites. Gladly. Amy and I both have a a favorite book in common, Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown. (laughs) I don't know if we can cuss on here, but that book effed me up in so many good ways and important ways. Amy was saying it's part call to action, part radical self-care, and memoir and really a transformative justice toolkit. Vimi said it really well that it just came to us at a perfect time in our professional lives. I know I was getting uh, a bit jaded from the work and was feeling like it was really hard to imagine the kind of change I wanted to see in the world because I was too focused on what was wrong. I, I just felt trapped under this thick layer of cynicism and emergent strategy restored my hope and imagination, reminded me that a lot of change can happen in our day-to-day interactions with each other, and just really uh, showed a radical vision for leadership and social justice movements that is focused on self-care, community care, building liberated and honest relationships with uh, the people that we're in community with, and moving away from a punitive call-out culture, but it's also couched in you know, that we are operating in a capitalist system. Yeah. So, I mean, that book just really moved me and it's um, stayed with me after all those months that we've read it. And I have like a thousand tabs uh, all across the (laughs) the book. (laughs) That's a great sign. Mm -hmm. We both pulled our book out as we were getting ready for the book club and we were like, oh my gosh, you did the same thing. But the other book that I really loved was uh, The White Tiger by Aravind Dadiga. I actually picked this book up while I was in India. It's set in modern day India and it's just really satirical and 
witty, kind of dark humor, crime suspense novel. I just felt like it did a really good and interesting job of interrogating like religious differences and economic inequality, the caste system and corruption. And it also just really humanized a lot of those uh, phenomenons, like put a, put a face to these systems and situations. So it's just a less kind of glamorous review of this quote unquote new India. It's like acknowledging opportunity with modern technology, but also a lot of the specific social and political issues that still have to be wrestled there. If that makes sense. It does. It sounds like even in a novel like this, which was a Man Booker Prize winner, you really enjoy learning mm-hmm. when you're reading. Yes. Now I'm interested to hear the books that haven't worked for you all as readers. Femi, what's yours? Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. I read it in high school, so more than 15 years ago. I think like a senior in high school, and I only read it that one time. But my hatred for it stayed with me till this day. I thought about like, maybe I need to check it out again and read it just to make sure I really hated it. And then I checked it out. I read the back of it and I was like, there's no way I'm going to read this. Even though it's just a hundred pages, it was so difficult for me to get through it. My English teacher did a phenomenal job. She was great, but I hated the main character. I hated his little journey down the Congo River. I I just felt like the way that Africans were written about were, they, they were just written about in a dehumanizing way and I just couldn't get past it and I felt no empathy for anyone. And I think it's supposed to be an anti-colonial book, but I just, I don't know. I don't know if I could even give the author that much credit or maybe I just need to reread, but I just remember having a hard time. There was a bazillion metaphors and I was over that. I couldn't connect to it in any mm-hmm. way. Okay. So really short. This is an allegory, 1899. So you want a story you can really connect to. What about Apocalypse Now? Could you connect to Apocalypse Now? No. (laughs) (laughs) I saw the movie based loosely on Heart of Darkness long before I read the book. And they both have this not quite real quality to them. Yeah. If this were a different podcast, we'd break down Apocalypse now, (laughs) especially the tiger leaping out of the woods, which terrifies me every time. Yeah. Okay. So everything you just said about the mainstream literary canon, right there. Yes. How about you, Erica? What book is not for you? Yeah. What's funny is uh, Femi and I came up with our list, you know, separately, but then when we came together, we found a lot of similarities. So I don't have the same book, but a lot of the themes and what Femi disliked about her book are similar in the book that I chose, which is Mm, A Passage mm -hmm. to India by E.M. Forrester. (laughs) I had to read that for my, one of my undergrad humanities classes. You know, it's set uh, a little bit later in 19, like 1920s against the backdrop of British colonial rule. It's also maybe attempting to represent an anti-colonial view, relationships between uh, Indian and, and British residents at the time. And it's written as a satire, but I think that while he does represent the British as being cruel to the local Indian population, I still felt the Indian characters were represented in a really condescending way, while the British still got to be represented as intellectual and the Indian characters were also painted as being quote-unquote irrational. I just had a really hard time looking past clear racial biases. I also just found it painfully, painfully slow paced. Yeah, it's. I think it's just challenging for me, no matter when the book is written though, when reading about colonial states from the perspective of the colonizer or from the perspective of a person who cannot empathize with the people who are enduring that oppression. This book is set in India and The White Tiger, did you mention that you picked it up in India? I did. Yes. <laughs> it was just being sold on the street. And I thought, oh, I, you know, I already read my other book. Now I want to read something about, you know, that's set in India. Does travel get to play that role in your reading life often? Or is that a fun bonus with these two books? I mean, you didn't enjoy the book, but still, I imagine that you read it differently for having been to India. Yes. Travel has played an important part in my reading life. It, it connects back to healing, I'd say, because my mom was a refugee from Vietnam. Growing up, I was always so interested in, you know, what was life like in Vietnam? What was your journey like? You know, I always wanted to know more about that. But 
you know, she was always very reluctant to share that because I think not a lot of healing has happened for her with the trauma that she experienced Mm -hmm. in her journey here. I went back to Vietnam um, actually for my honeymoon um, a couple of years ago. I felt like I was able to just tap into this whole side of my heritage that I really wasn't able to because I didn't want to, you know, make her relive the trauma that she'd been through just, just for the sake of me knowing about things. And I actually picked up a book there about the Vietnam War and about a refugee who came to the U.S., uh, Kim Phuc. The book, I felt, really encapsulated a lot of common experiences that Vietnamese refugees experienced. And it just played a really big role in rooting me with my heritage and understanding my mom's journey. So reading while traveling has really helped me understand myself and the new community that I'm, I'm in. Yes. You mentioned that community is a really important component of the reading life for you. And I think a lot of times when we hear our fellow readers say that, we imagine being able to talk about what we've read with a friend or showing up for book club on Tuesday night. But I love the way that you made that mean much, much more to you than what you happen to put on your calendar on a weeknight once a month, but that it really goes to identity. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And just hearing Erica say that, I'm I think Erica mentioned earlier, I'm also Vietnamese and my parents were also Vietnamese refugees who migrated to the States in the 80s. And same thing, Erica, like my parents rarely talked about. I mean, my parents aren't together anymore, but still, like, even as adults, it's very difficult for them to talk about, you know, their migration stories and their histories. And I just realizing I I really am drawn to stories of migration, of connection, building and rebuilding, self-discovery, all of that stuff really as a way to deepen like a connection and better understand my parents' migration story, my family story of migration, and just get a better handle or an understanding of all of that. Because I know it is a really touchy subject for them. I mean, we talked about it like abstractly, like growing up, my brother and I would always ask questions, but they were, they gave very like short responses. Obviously there's Mm -hmm. been a lot of trauma and we never were able to talk about it like concretely, the story from like beginning to end but gave us snippets here and there because it was really, really difficult. So I think in reading, that's where I was really able to explore like my personal identity, my family's histories, and know how to, you know, better understand the world and and how to engage with different people, but also just understand how people build connections and communities through shared resilience and how people build new futures for themselves and not feel so, you know, alone. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why we're drawn to sad books, Erica. You know, I think you're onto something. (laughs) That's probably why I love stories about different narratives, but like immigrant experiences, refugee experiences, migration stories, all of it. It just, and about families, intergenerational stories and all of that stuff. I just love it all. I just soak it up because I feel like I'm learning more about different people, but I'm also getting a a peek or a glimpse into what my family has also gone through as well. Mm -hmm. Even though my parents like named me, my name is like named after their whole migration story. And then they never talked about it really after that. Really? (laughs) Yeah. The first part of my name, Fee, means the Philippines in um, Vietnamese, which is where I was conceived. Because when they left Vietnam, they escaped the war and the and then they left Vietnam in the early 80s, left via boat, got pulled into the Philippines by Red Cross. And that was where I was conceived. So Fee, second part of my name, me, in Vietnamese means America. And so nine months later, I was born in the States. And they gave me this like loaded name that had all this meaning, never allowed me to like change my name to like, you know, a more Western American name, made me like keep the name. And of course, like now as an adult, I totally appreciate it and I really love it. But I always felt like my name was so loaded, had, you know, all this meaning to it, but it was just so difficult for them to talk about their journey and their history. Mm. I find it really touching that it was important for them to preserve something that they knew they maybe wouldn't be able to discuss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I like it. Yeah. Okay, I have ideas for you. But first, tell me what you're reading now. All right, right now I'm reading Becoming by Michelle Obama for mm-hmm. our book club. I am too, but not for your book club. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours to go in the Audible version, and I'm going to find all the dishes to wash or all the plates to stack or like all the miles to walk because I need to finish it. I want to know what happens. Oh my gosh. I'm also (laughs) doing an audible and I've been obsessed with the Marie Kondo Netflix series. So I've just been tidying up my whole house with Michelle Obama audible in the background. 
I really like that visual. <laughs> She's such a good reader too. She's so good. She is. So I have to listen to it at like 1.5 because I'm, maybe I talk really fast and I'm used to hearing things, but I feel like I have to like speed it up a little or probably because I just want to finish it so I can find out everything. I'm listening to it a little faster too. And that is absolutely why I want to get to the end. Faster. <laughs> not because I'm not enjoying it because I want, I, it sounds funny to say you want to find out what happens. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But you t- I don't know how she's going to tell it or what she's going to say. Like, you don't know her perspective. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I'm really enjoying that. So I'm reading that book for book club. And for myself, I'm finishing The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Bessel A. van der Kolk. I need you to talk me into this because I keep hearing it's amazing, but it looks dense it does. in the little dry. I've had it literally on my nightstand for six months. Give me a push. Oh, okay. Well, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it took me a while to get into two. What really helped was I read Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman before, which I think is a great companion piece. It's kind of same thing, history of trauma, but from a feminist perspective or lens and focusing on, on women's work in psychology, trauma and all of that stuff. But the body keeps the score totally breaks everything down. And he does a great job bringing in his own personal work experiences from his early days as a medical student and as a resident working with veterans for the VA and how his first research with PTSD and how that affects people and how at that time no one acknowledged PTSD. They didn't believe trauma was a thing. They didn't even believe trauma can really affect people's bodies and impact people's bodies in such a physical way, like physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, and all of that. It's just, it's it's really, really good. But I think it did take me a little while to get into. And I found that reading a different book about trauma kind of helped me prepare for this book, but also reading it in bits and pieces. Like I, I feel like I've been reading this book for the last four months. Another thing that helps because it is a really dense book. I think like the last hundred pages is like resources and references. So I had a second bookmark at the end of the real book, which is like 356 pages. So I felt like I was getting closer to the end instead of the actual last page. Well, I appreciate the warning that it may take a while to ease in. If I know that, I have a lot more patience, yes. but I, I need to read this start to finish. I, I just just need to make it happen. I'll just take it as a sign that you mentioned it today. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And I, re- I read each chapter like it's a news article. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I kind of take it bit by bit. And then once you find the groove, then you can like quickly get through it. Erica, what are you reading now? So I'm also reading Becoming by Michelle Obama or listening to because I'm doing the audio book too. I don't know if this happens for you all, but when I'm doing something with my hands while I'm listening, it's like I have a much easier time recalling what was said in the audiobook because I don't know if it's like an association, a physical and hearing association, but I just find that when I'm cleaning while listening or tidying up, it just really stays with me. That's so interesting. (laughs) How did you put that together? I just noticed that if I'm just sitting there eating or just, just sitting there listening, my mind starts drifting But if I'm doing something idly with my hands while I'm listening, it's almost like when you're writing, you're more likely to remember something than if you type. It's not a passive thing, but it's it's activating a part of my brain while I'm listening. So I'm making these connections simultaneously. So it's my formula for (laughs) being able to pay attention to an audio book. I like it. Um, I'm also reading The Revolution Will Not Be Funded by a group of feminist authors under the umbrella organization of Insight. I think it's so great for me because I've worked only in nonprofits my whole career. I think I'm still trying to figure out how to best do that, how to do that in the most uh, you know ethical way, how to really live my values in the work that I do every day. I've reflected on the nonprofit industrial complex and I, I'm grateful for this book coming to me now because I think it's offering solutions and actions we can take in our own organizations that combat the harmful things that nonprofits can do to social movements. It's just a really important yeah, set of observations on how nonprofits, while mostly you know, left-leaning and sometimes progressive organizations, in fact, constrict you know, the ability to work towards revolution or like mass social change because we're like trained to think about it in terms of a career instead of passion and like this needs to happen right now on a mass scale. Interesting background too on a lot of the foundations that fund nonprofits that I admire or that I have worked for. So that's been a fun read. (laughs) 
challenging and fun. Challenging and fun. I'm noticing that those are going together for both of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I know that we are going to identify a few books that the Sister Insider Book Club may enjoy reading together. But in addition to that, what would you all like to be different in your reading life? I feel like I'm always drawn to heavy heavy hitters, heartbreaking, sad, and serious reads, which I really do love. I still want books that will like haunt me afterwards, but maybe not continually make me sad all the time. I don't know. I kind of want to read to like laugh, which sounds funny. I mean, I don't want to read like humor books. I still want to <laughs> read like stories and fiction or nonfiction, but I also want to read something like a little light, but still deep and impactful. Okay. Haunting, but not heartbreaking. Yeah. Not, not a nonstop heartbreak, like a heartbreak. That's like, you're going to hurt for a little while, but it's okay. You'll heal and it'll be good. How about you, Erica? I feel like the topics that I'm drawn to, I'm just always going to be drawn to them. And a lot of them are, are overlapping with themes. You know, I, I love memoirs and diaspora stories, migration stories, and those just by the nature of those topics tend to have a lot of heartbreaking moments. I love that. And I, I live for that moment in the book and find it like really helpful to work through my own experiences and hardships. But I think I want to find a way into more of the radical self-care realm and um, self-help realm because I have a really hard time getting through one of those. And I think Adrian Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy was the first time where I've actually read a book that is focused on, you know, self-care so explicitly. I really appreciated that, you know, the undercurrent of that book is commitment towards anti-capitalism and liberation and racial justice. I guess I'm looking for books that can help me continue cultivating that experience and that direction. Okay. I'm going to suggest three books you all may enjoy reading together. I'm sure you have plenty of titles to choose from already, but I'm not (laughs) going to feel bad about piling on because you all have a democratic selection process. Would you tell me what the factors are that go into choosing books for your Sister Insider Book Club? Pretty much they just have to be a book written by and about women of color or trans women. We're aiming for, but it's not a hard and fast rule, but we're aiming for under 300 pages. But every time we aim for that, People always vote for a 300 plus book. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hence becoming. (laughs) And you read fiction and non. You do vote in the majority rules and that's how you choose? Yes. Yes. Man, it is a slow process, but we are always (laughs) here for democracy. Yes. Everyone can recommend a book. We'll put it all in. You don't even have to be reading along with us or a part of our book club. You can be like an admirer from afar and still be able to vote. And so we have a deadline. People vote by that deadline. And then whatever has the most votes, that's what we'll read next. How do people vote? Google form. Oh, nice. And sometimes we have the votes on our Instagram account as well. We only implemented a Google form like last month. Before that, we would literally tell people, just direct message us your vote. And then that was like a nightmare because we had to like tally everything up Mm -hmm. and not mix up. But Google form through our Instagram account. Would you tell me some of the books that you've read so far in your book club? We started off with When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Con Cullors, co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Then we read Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Marchado, which is a short story collection. And then we read Emergent Strategy by <laughs> Adrian Marie Brown. We're just throwing that book out there like I multiple know, we're, times. We're not getting kickbacks for this, I promise. <laughs> and, then, um, and then we read An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. That was a fun book to discuss. Mm-hmm. And then now we're reading Becoming by Michelle Obama. Which is 20 hours on Audible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that, is not, that is not 300 pages. Yeah. No. <laughs> Next. Okay. I'm trying to decide if I want to delve into this self-care kind of nonfiction thing or... Uh, <laughs> there's so many novels. When you talk about self-care, Erica, does that ever look like a novel that's more light and fun than you typically read? Or do you mean explicitly... I want a book that would be filed in this section of the bookstore. (laughs) I'm open to both. I think that maybe the strand of self-care that I'm interested in is probably very small. (laughs) But um, so I'd be open to light fiction too about, you know, the kinds of topics that we've been discussing. 
How about you, Femi? Does that resonate for you or is that just me wanting some cheap therapy? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good. I feel like I read like a bunch of trauma-related self-care kind of books, but always open to, like it doesn't have to be in the self-care section of a bookstore. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I read like a cookbook as self-care recently. That is a tried and true strategy. It was a Feed the Resistance, Recipes and Ideas for Getting Involved by Julia Tertian. My friend gave it to me as a um, gift and it's it's like 50 pages. But then I was like, this is great. I can eat, make food and feel good. (laughs) (laughs) On multiple levels. That's fun. Okay. I'm not going to go for the lightest of the possible light books, but I am going to go for a slim novel that is heartfelt, and touching and thoroughly of its time and place. But let's just say perhaps it hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves. How does that sound? That sounds good. Yeah. What do you know about the slim little Japanese novel, Strange Weather in Tokyo? (gasps) I've never heard of it. Mm, Me neither. I love how you guess. Like, that's a good thing. Yes, it is a good thing. I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah. So this is by Hiromi Kawakami. Seriously, so, so skinny. My version is 192 pages, but I feel like it went quicker than that. Mm. If you're looking for it online, it was originally published as The Briefcase. So if you're looking for reviews or you're looking for a copy, you may find it as that. Also, the cover of the latest edition of Strange Weather in Tokyo that you can get in the States is so beautiful. It's really striking. It has very little to do with the book itself. I feel like you should know that. (laughs) Good to know. Set in Tokyo, as you may have guessed, and it's about a woman who is in her late 30s. She lives alone. She lives a rather solitary life. She has her job. She goes home after work. But one night she happens to bump into a man she used to know. He actually used to teach at her high school. You never learn his name. She just calls him sensei. But she bumps into him at a local bar. They strike up an unlikely friendship. So this man is 30 years older than she is. He's retired. She believes him to be a widower and they have nothing in common. But nevertheless, they over time grow more and more important to each other. And it's a very quiet story. It's not full of big moments. But what Kawakami manages to do here is translate like the way somebody looks up or the way the cherry blossoms are situated on the tree. Like she's able to imbue these little literary touches with great meaning. So it's really spare, but emotionally so much happens. A romance seems like a stretch. This is not a romance novel by any means. It's a love story, but not the kind of one that we typically read in any culture. It's not a lighthearted novel. It's also not, do not say we have nothing. What do you think about a really immersive story set in modern Tokyo, like thoroughly in time and place and culture? I like it. I'm in. You said 190 pages, immersive. I'm totally in. That sounds great. All right. Now we're pivoting to the heavier stuff. Ooh, okay. (laughs) Have you all read The Boat People by Sharon Bala? No. No. Is this a book you know? No, I've never even heard of that. Okay, fun. So this was a big Canada Read selection. Oh, in the last two years, this is her debut. This is a migrant story, and it was absolutely inspired by a real headline in 2010 when a ship traveling from Sri Lanka to, I believe it was Vancouver, it was Canada in the news story, was detained at the border, and the refugees were not allowed off the boat for some time. So that inspired this novel, and it just came out a couple of years ago. It took her many years to write it. I find it incredible that this is a debut. The story echoes the actual news story. There's a cargo ship. It's carrying 500 refugees. They're fleeing war-torn Sri Lanka, and it docks on Canada's coast because in the words of a character in the novel, they say like, oh, Canada has a reputation for being a soft touch. Like they'll let people who need asylum in. But Government officials wonder if there are members of a terrorist cell on the boat. And so they detain everyone, including lots of children. In the key characters we focus in on here, there's a father and a son who are separated. With this story in the news, in the novel, they want to make sure that this national security crisis, whether it's real or completely manufactured, is resolved before they let people off the boat. But of course, the conditions are terrible. People need refuge. Nobody knows what to do. And so they wait and wait and wait. And what Bala does here is she tells the story through three different lenses. There's the story of the refugee and his son. 
And you get flashbacks to what happened in Sri Lanka and why they were leaving. You have this refugee's lawyer, and then you have a new adjudicator, new to the job, who doesn't feel ready to make this kind of life or death decision for the people who are coming off the boat, but who has no choice. And actually her mother's experience in an internment camp in the U.S. decades prior ends up really informing her actions in this story. Something else that's interesting to know about this story is it's one of those books that doesn't have any quotation marks. And I know that makes many readers absolutely bananas. (laughs) (laughs) But the author said that that wasn't just a style choice. She did it on purpose because she wanted to convey the sense of not quite nailed down unreality that people in this kind of situation would be experiencing. Mm. This does almost make your page requirement. It's about 350 pages. How does that sound? Sounds like it was made for us to read, huh, Mimi? <laughs> I know. I got chills as you were describing it, Anne. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's a good sign. Oh, what's another long book? Have you read A Place for Us by Fatima Mirza? Ooh, I haven't, but I have that book on my bookshelf. Wow. Waiting to, everyone recommended it to me last year, and I'm just like waiting to dive in. And I've talked about it on the podcast before. I love it so much. It was one of my favorites last year. And I'm not recommending it just because I love it so much. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed these previous two mm-hmm. also. But A Place for Us have a special place in my heart as far as recent releases go. Maybe in 10 years, I'll be saying exactly the same thing. I think it has staying power. It's a little on the long side. And even though it's a page turner in the sense you really want to know what happens next, it's not a book that you can just breeze through because the text demands more of you to sink into the story to really get it. The reason I'm mentioning it now is it just sounds like it has so many of the things you're looking for. It just deals with all those issues of identity and culture Mm -hmm. and community and family and migration and generational change. And we could probably keep going, (laughs) but- It's about an Indian American Muslim family. The parents were first-generation immigrants. They're coming to Southern California. The children are not accepted as real Americans. Imagine massive air quotes there. Mm -hmm. This has definitely some gut-wrenching sections, but it ends on such a strong up note of hope that I think it wouldn't break you even at the end of a really long day managing your caseload. The title comes from West Side Story. It's a it's a family story. You have the parents who are dealing with things the best way they know how, but are still really failing their children in some key ways, as happens with the people we love. Uh, that is one of the reasons I love it, is that it's completely fictional, and yet you feel like you know these people, and you feel like she's speaking to issues that you know and understand and that matter to you and that you really relate to. And the way she writes about them may make you think differently about your own relationships and maybe even change your actions in your own life. And I really love it when an author can do that. Also, I love how some of the big dramatic moments aren't hugely dramatic at all. They're life-changing, but they're talking about whether or not a kid can buy a pair of shoes at family dinner or how he did on a spelling test, you know, like completely quotidian, but deeply meaningful at the same time. It's so good. I can see why people keep recommending it to you. That sounds so beautiful. I know. Now I'm like, Oh my gosh, why do we have to have people vote? (laughs) (laughs) And finally, tell me you've read Homegoing by Yaw Jesse. Oh, I totally have. Okay, probably doesn't belong on your list because it is like so much Kleenex, not so much hope. Yes. Mm. Erica, I gave it to you for Christmas. Yes, she did. So I, <laughs> I, I hope you've read it, Erica. I, I'm going to read it soon. <laughs> uh, but I, I think I need to stock up on Kleenexes before I crack it open. <laughs> I checked that book out at the library. I read it, loved it so much, bought it for myself, forgot I bought it, saw it at a thrift store, bought it again. And then I was like, I'm giving this one to Erica. <laughs> but you're right. It's like Kleenex after Kleenex. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but it just makes you think about, oh, I don't know. I just felt like I was at like the longest hangover after. In a good way? I mean, not good to experience, but in a like, wow, that was a great book way? In school, you're supposed to write like these essays about books and then think about them forever. And then sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. After I read that book, I, I thought about it, like critically reflecting and then critically analyzing that book, talking to people who read that book and just was in a meditative state. So in a good way, because I just felt like I was continuously asking questions and learning. And it's important to like read about generational experiences and trauma and 
atrocities that happen to to folks, to people. And whew, you're going to need to stock up, Erica. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that is going to make you want to read it or make you want to wait to read it. But it's also short. Like it was also, I think that was under 300 pages. Wow. Right? I don't remember. But I remember I was like, I finished it in one night and felt like all the things that night. All the things. All the things. <laughs> okay, I have to pile on one more. If you don't know what we were promised by Lucy Tan, I think it might also be calling your name. I haven't read that. No, I haven't either. This came out in the summer of 2018. It is a debut. This is another one with a completely gorgeous cover that does actually have to do with the book. Oh, okay. The way she writes about people moving between cultures and also her characters are navigating so many of the tensions in a society I haven't told you about yet. So it's set in contemporary Shanghai. There's a couple different storylines, but in one of the storylines, there's a wealthy couple who are from a small village outside Shanghai, but they went to the United States to, it might've been the University of Pennsylvania, but the husband went to an Ivy League school and they stayed in America for a while, but they've decided to return to Shanghai and they are living among the newly super wealthy. So having spent all this time in the States and then coming back and setting up residence among the nouveau riche and definitely not the village life they were both raised in where they met each other, they feel like they don't belong anywhere. Even when they go home, they don't belong there anymore. And they didn't belong in America, but they don't belong back in Shanghai. And they just feel deeply uneasy and out of place. She writes about it so well. There might be some heartbreaking moments, but on the whole, this is a really interesting story about people navigating the divide between what they thought they wanted and how that's actually working out for them these days. I love the way that there's this slow build to discovering what secret past choice a character has made that has been long buried and forgotten, but something happens in the story that brings it like surging back into the present and makes it something that she needs to deal with. And I just think Lucy Tan handles it so well. And anyone who has ever had thoughts about the road not taken or regrets over something they've done in their past, I think will really resonate with the way she writes this, but it remains really hopeful. There's more hope than despair. Tan really explores so many different tensions in contemporary China. Like you have rich versus poor and the city versus the villages and the traditional values versus the new values and technology versus the more traditional ways of doing things. Uh, it's just really well done. And it's only 320 pages and it would look really beautiful on your Instagram feed because it's this lovely like oceany turquoise if you needed just one more week <laughs> selling point, I'm just going to keep piling it on. I'm all about our Instagram content. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've seen it. You've got that Southern California light going for you, even in the winter. It makes those books look good. <laughs> <laughs> Feemy, remember that feminist pop-up bookshop? This, yes. was, uh, this book was on their must-reads for um, <gasps> last year. So I think we should cast a vote for it. <laughs> but the other one sounds so good too. <laughs> I know. All right. Here's what we've got. Out of the books we talked about today, Strange Weather in Tokyo by Hiromi Kowakami, The Boat People by Sharon Bala, A Place for Us by Fatima Mirza, we're not going to count Homegoing by Ya Jesse, but we talked about it. And finally, What We Were Promised by Lucy Tan. Of those books, what are you all most interested in perhaps reading next with Book Club? Do you want to go first, Erica? <laughs> I mean, I, I have one in, in mind. I think I'm most drawn to The Boat People because a lot of the themes that we both seek out in our reading choices are present. And I love that you mentioned, Anne, that it does end with, you know, a hopeful finish and that it's not so heart-wrenching, but it it touches on a lot of the challenges and struggles of migration and seeking asylum. That one just really stood out to me. I just want to make sure that you don't like send me a bill for your tissues, which I would happily <laughs> comply. <laughs> it does not end in sweeping devastation. But the sun is not coming out either. Okay. <laughs> I was going to pick a place for us, that one, but probably because I already have the book and mm -hmm. the cover is beautiful and it hits all those same points. But then I also want to pick the Lucy Tan book. I know. Very hard. Well, I guess that's why people are going to vote. 
<laughs> yeah, it's not up to us. Yeah. It's democracy. Yeah. <laughs> do you try to make your pitch though? No. Or do you just present the titles in a vacuum on a Google form? Pretty much. But we do put the covers of the books up and that seems to, I'm sure that that plays some factor in the voting. Sometimes I feel like people are voting just based on the book cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the Lucy Tan one might win then. <laughs> That's true. I was going to say, luckily those ones you're interested in are very pretty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I can't wait to hear what you all end up reading. Thank you all so much for talking books and book clubs with me today. Thank you. We really appreciate the recommendations. It's been so fun. I know. (laughs) Thank you so much, Anne. It's my pleasure. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Erica and Femi today. And I'd love to hear what you think they and Sister Insider should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 169. That's 169. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. If you'd like to connect with Sister Insider, follow them on Instagram at Sister Insider Book Club. Their next LA meeting is on February 16th. You can also follow Erica at North America. That's America with a K as in Erica. Next week on the show, I'm talking to Anna LeBaron, author of the memoir, The Polygamous Daughter, about how literacy kept her going through a difficult childhood and also the book that helped her put her dearest fractured relationships back together again. Here's a sneak peek. Books have shaped my life and books have mentored me from childhood. Being able to read saved my life. Tell me about that. We moved around so much as children, and sometimes we would be put in school, and sometimes we would not be in school. Whenever we were in school, school was a refuge for me. It was a respite from the chaos of my uh, family life. No matter how much school I had missed, being bumped around and jumping around from school to school, as long as I could read, I could catch up, I could figure out what to do, and learn learning and books are what opened my eyes to the world around me. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you are not on the list, you can fix that now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. And readers, we have news to share with you soon, so you want to be on this list. Whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or buy or borrow a copy of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or a friend. Thanks so much to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Bekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>